So hello and welcome to Cocoa Pods, a podcast of the Birth Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation. Uh, my name is Dr. Bola Sogade. I'm a women's health specialist, and we're very fortunate to have with us today Dr. Michael G. Knight. Um, Dr. Michael G. Knight, MD, MSHP, FACP, is the Associate Chief Quality and Population Health Officer, Head of Healthcare Delivery Transformation, and Medical Director of Community Primary Care at the GW Medical Faculty Associates, and also Assistant Professor of Medicine at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. So welcome and thank you, Dr. Knight, for being on this podcast today. Of course, thank you for having me. Thank you. So, um, you know, when I think about a different way of providing care to my patients, I think about telemedicine via video or telephone. I think about new technologies, for example, um, the use of drones as delivery vehicles for critical supplies in places like sub-Saharan Africa or in rural America. I think about robotics, you know, I'm a robotic surgeon, and I think about the widespread 3D printing of healthcare-related items. I think about patients monitoring their blood pressures themselves in a self-blood pressure monitoring program, and I think of smartphone enabled monitoring of patients' adherence to treatments. So can you please explain to us what healthcare delivery transformation really is? Yes, yes. So I love that term. And so when I joined and, and, and became a part of this department, I told all of our staff, if we're not changing the way that we deliver healthcare and have the ability to change people's lives, and we're going to take that name off the door. So healthcare delivery transformation means that we can't keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result. In 2022, we know that there are disparities in outcomes and care. So where a patient lives, what a patient looks like, where a patient is from, the, how much educational attainment they have achieved has an impact on their health. And so we don't live in a society where everyone has the same opportunity for optimal health. And so as a part of what we do to transform healthcare is to think about innovative ways of delivering healthcare to our patients, whether that includes things like telemedicine, as you've outlined, whether that is the way that we deliver care, focusing on evidence-based medicine, focusing on utilizing the care team model to include patient navigators, uh, care managers, nurses, medical assistants, physicians, advanced practitioners to deliver the highest level of care to our patients. Whether we're paying for groceries or whether we're paying for medications, we want to think about ways to change the narrative and transform healthcare. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for that. You know, I want to talk about you some more. You're originally from New York and you completed undergraduate studies at Oakland University and attended the Cleveland Clinic Learner College of Medicine of Case Western Reserve University. You then completed residency training at New York Presbyterian Well Cornell Medical Center and was a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Clinical Scholar 
at the University of Pennsylvania. There you completed a master's in health policy research. In your current executive role at GW, you are responsible for directing the development, implementation, and maintenance of quality and patient safety initiatives to improve patient health outcomes and mitigate preventable patient harm. You know, some people say, don't go to the hospital. They will actually kill you there. We all know healthcare systems can be full of error traps. Why does the field of patient safety exist apart from the apparent? Of course. So, you know, when we have been thinking about the field of medicine from when it was started centuries ago, there was an acceptance that we're going to do good work, but someone might get hurt. And if most people do well, we're doing okay. But it wasn't until the 90s where Ta'era is Human, a report from the Institute of Medicine at that time, now called the National Academy of, of Medicine, talked about the number of medical errors that are occurring on a daily basis. Um, they estimated that patient safety events or medical errors were responsible for anywhere up to 400,000 deaths per year. And we said that is unacceptable. What we know is that humans are going to make mistakes. It's a part of our nature. But the way that we think about patient safety science is developing systems and tools and processes so that there are checks and balances to prevent human error from reaching the patient. And so oftentimes we use something called the Swiss cheese model, okay? And so if you think about Swiss cheese, it has holes in it. And if you were to put a few slices of Swiss cheese aligned, the hole would not go through, right? You couldn't put your finger through because they're going to be different holes. But what happens is when we don't have processes in place, that Swiss cheese can align and allow the error to go from the human all the way to the patient. And so my job uh, and previously as a patient safety officer, but now overlying our quality initiatives is to make sure that there are barriers that prevent errors getting to the patient. And those are things like checklists, like processes, like standard protocols that do not rely on our memory or what we believe we should be doing, but actually a routine that can keep our patients safe. Wow. Well, thank you. You know, um, you know, applying safety sciences to healthcare requires inclusion of experts with new source disciplines, such as engineering, but without any divergence from the original goals or the inherent nature of the medical profession. And you talked about this a little bit, but what else is in the nature of patient safety? Mm -hmm. So one of the things is that we have a lot of new technology. And you talked about, for example, being a robotic surgeon, right? And so a ro using a robotic uh, machine to do surgery sounds amazing to us, but to many patients, it's scary, right? Because what is this robot going to do to me? And so a part of the patient safety science is making sure that the technology that we design is safe and that there are check marks so that we can still have 
humans involved and making the right decisions and and technology that we have processes to make sure that they're functioning correctly, making sure they're being serviced, right? So, you know, you're driving in a car and you your car has a little bump and, you, you know, you grab the wheel and you're okay. You don't want to be doing robotic surgery and have a little bump, right? As a surgeon, you have to make sure that the technology is going to keep patients safe and do what it's designed to do. So that's a, also another large part of patient safety. Wow. Wow. Thank you. Um, hmm. You know, I, as a OBGYN, you know, I take a scalpel to a woman's tummy, cutting through layers to get a baby out in a cesarean section. A maternal fetal medicine specialist may puncture the sac of an unborn baby to perform corrective fetal surgery to treat a congenital abnormality in the unborn fetus while the fetus is still in the pregnant uterus. Or a patient's heart is lifted, chilled, cut, and sewn during cardiac transplantation surgery. The first condition of risk is the healthcare condition. The second condition is the treatment of the primary condition, and this can be audaciously risky. How has patient safety emerged from systems design? If you want to recapitulate on some of the things you said. Sure, sure. So, you know, we've talked about uh, technology and what you just outlined is surgical procedure, right? So number one, are we training individuals appropriately? Are Are individuals getting the appropriate training? So just because you've seen it one time doesn't mean you can do it. I know we say see one, do one, teach one. But that is why we have residency training programs. That is why we have certifications. That is why we have a process to make sure that someone has the the level of ability to do a surgical procedure. Some of these procedures are very, very technical and they're very difficult. So we have to make sure that part of our role is making sure that our departments, when they have a new procedure, when they're doing something that we don't usually do, what is the plan? to make sure it's done safely. That may include having someone who is experienced work with someone who is less experienced until they have the level of competency. That means having emergency procedures for for things that we expect. So, you know, you are not going to do vascular surgery if you don't know how to handle a major bleed because that is a very possible complication. You're not going to do, um, you know, you're not going to take a patient onto labor and delivery and you don't know what to do if you're seeing decelerations and that person's going to need a stat C-section. You have to have a plan. And so a part of it is making sure that there are emergency protocols in place, but not only that, that all staff are educated on those protocols and able to deliver and execute to keep our patients safe. Wow. You know, as a patient safety practitioner, you know, just to explain to uh, lay people uh, out there. So are you the one or is your team, are you guys the one that that catches an adverse event that is about to unfold such that it is averted or its impact is minimized because it was caught in action and you have prevented harm to the patient? Yeah. So. Our goal is not to have to catch it. It's to prevent it from even getting to the patient. But if it does, yes, it's our job to do that. So I'll tell you, the majority of the work that we do is around what we call proactive proactive risk assessment. 
Okay, so going out into the clinics and our clinical spaces and saying, where are the high risk opportunities, right? It's like walking into the kitchen and you see the knife sitting on the counter. You know that 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 knife can fall and cut someone's foot. We need to put this away. The same thing, if you have children, you know you have to make sure that you have child safe knobs on your stove because your child will just turn the fire on. That's proactive risk assessment. I'm going to put plugs in my electrical outlet so that they don't stick their fingers in there, right? That's proactive risk assessment. So that's what we do. So first of all, I'm going to look and say that chair is not stable. And if a patient with ambulatory dysfunction, meaning they don't walk very well, sits there, there is a likelihood they're going to fall. So we need to remove this chair. That's proactive. Next level is when we identify a near miss, okay? So the patient is about, they're sitting down, they're getting up, the chair is, is not good, and they're wobbly. I grab the patient, right? We, we caught them. They never fell. And many times people will say, okay, well, that shows that our system is working well. We caught that patient before she fell. But actually, no, the, that was a near miss. And we take that very seriously. We review that case and we have a plan to say, how can we prevent that from happening? So we like the near misses. We like the, the almost events because that's where we can actually prevent this from happening again. Now, if we do have that patient having a fall, then we get those reports and those are patient safety events that we review. And then we work with our clinical leaders in their clinical areas to develop effective plans to prevent those kind of events from happening again. Wow. Well, you know, in patient safety models, there's an easy to recall overarching model of patient safety that some people say there are really four main domains of patient safety. There are the people who receive healthcare, the patients, they are the people who provide it, the doctors, nurses, advanced practitioners. They are the systems of therapeutic action because when medication is involved, we have people that dispense medications and stuff like that. And there are methods and elements within each domain. So how do these domains interact in making a patient safe? Yeah completely. They interact every day. So let's use an example. You know, a patient comes into the clinic. One of the first things my staff does is confirm their medications. Okay. We, our patients have to be empowered. They have to be educated about their health. And so they come in, if they don't know what medications they're taking, that is a safety issue because may I can then prescribe something that may have an interaction with a medication they're already taking and it can make them sick, okay? So for example, a patient comes in, I say, what medications are you on? In the domain of the patient, it's important for them to know what they're taking, why they're taking it. For the provider, the physician, the advanced practitioner, it's important for my, me or you or any other uh, practitioner to be able to identify that medication. So I know this patient is on a blood thinner, right? And so because of that, I'm less likely to prescribe something that may increase their risk of having a stomach bleed, okay? And so that would be something like an inflammatory, uh, anti-inflammatory medication that can really irritate the stomach. And then the, per the person who's dispensing the medication, 
So if the patient doesn't remember and I don't remember, so the patient's on a blood thinner, they didn't remember. I have prescribed a, a anti-inflammatory that may irritate their stomach because I didn't read the chart. But when I send that prescription to the pharmacy, the pharmacist says, wait a minute, ma'am, you're on this blood thinner. I can't, I don't think that this is a good idea because this is going to increase your risk of having a stomach ulcer and having a bleed. So that is how those three domains work together. And I would add one more, which is technology, because I may put in the order and my electronic medical record says, flag, there is an interaction. And so that's how we're able to work together to keep patients safe. Wow. Thank you. You know, there is a thinking that latent or hidden errors are upstream defects in the design of systems, organizations, management, training, and equipment. And most of these are called the blunt end. This is these errors that lead individuals at the sharp end, for instance, the doctors, the nurses, to make mistakes. So assuming the mistakes or the errors have been made, to punish individuals for such mistakes seems seemed to make little sense since the errors are bound to continue until all the underlying causes are remedied. So when something does go wrong, do we point fingers like he did it? And then do we proceed to punish the individuals at the sharp end of this whole process? You know, take their licenses, condemn them to the gallows. How does this work? How how should it work? And what you have outlined is how we have practiced medicine for centuries and not just in medicine. It is human nature to want to blame someone or something when something goes wrong. And so when I uh, hear about events, right, so you'll say uh, this patient got the wrong medication because the nurse did the wrong calculation. What is the human nature to do? You're going to fire the nurse, right? She didn't do what she needed to do, fired. But then two weeks later, another nurse makes the same mistake. And why is that? Because there was an underlying upstream problem with the process. Because, for example, maybe the nurses are making calculations in a busy workroom where they're being distracted by other team members who are coming to them with questions. Maybe there's not a calculator readily available and the nurses are having to rely on their memory to do the calculation. Maybe there's no second person check process in place. So when a calculation is done, someone else can check. Maybe the unit is understaffed and you have one nurse who's taking care of 10 or 12 patients and has no time to do the calculation. So if you have not worked to identify the root causes, it's easy to point the finger. We have a term that we call just culture and just culture means looking at the underlying issue, holding people accountable when appropriate. It does not mean that people are not held accountable. If I have taught you how to do something, you know the rules and you have every opportunity and you are making a decision because you want to cut corners, that is different, right? Then you may have some culpability. We actually have a culpability decision tree that helps us to determine someone's level of culpability. But one of the easiest things to say is if if someone else in a similar position was in this case, could they have made the same mistake? And if that answer is yes, then there is likely a systems issue that needs to be addressed and pointing the finger and firing someone is not going to help to address it. 
Wow, wow, thank you. And, and you know, you've talked about this a little bit, but do you have any real life example of bad situations in patient care that have been averted secondary to safety monitoring? Can you just, mm-hmm. you know, think of anything off the top of your head? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, when we think about patients who have allergies, right? If allergies are not being checked and clearly labeled, identified, then patients can immediately have severe allergic reactions that can be life-threatening. And so when we think about a patient that, that comes in, the allergies have not been reconciled and say they have an allergy to an antibiotic. And the antibiotic is prescribed, it goes out to the pharmacy, and the patient gets it and says, I'm allergic to this. I'm not supposed to take that. Right. And so that was a near miss. Thankfully, the patient in that first domain was educated on what their own allergies were. That's just one example. There are also examples, like I've said, where the pharmacist is the one who who rings the bell. I can give other examples, for example, of of when individuals uh, leave lab specimens. Right. So when you go to the doctor and they draw your blood, if you don't have the right label on that, that could completely change your trajectory. Right. Because if your blood is not what I think it is and someone else's label is on there, I can call you and tell you that you have diabetes or that you have liver failure. And in actuality, you don't. And someone else does. I'll give you a story. Uh, Actually, a patient not at my institution um, was had gone in for her mammogram. Mammogram is the screening for breast cancer. And the report came back and said that something didn't look right. So I had to get a biopsy. Biopsy was done. Pathology came back as cancer, malignancy. And so they said, we need to do a mastectomy. We need to remove the breast. And so the woman underwent the mastectomy. And as we do in surgery, uh, after that's done, the, the tissue always goes to pathology. And so when the tissue went to pathology, the patient was in the hospital recovering. And they came back and said, good news, you're cancer free. But the news also was that she never had any cancer to begin with because it was the wrong patient label on the pathology slide from her biopsy. So that means someone else has cancer that has not known about it. We've got to figure out who that is. And she has gone through a surgical procedure that was not necessary. And in addition to that, that patient had a surgical site infection and complications. So those are real things that happen. Individuals are having wrong site surgery meaning you go into the hospital for your left knee replacement and you get a right knee replacement and your left knee is still not doing well. Happens all the time in the United States. And so that is why patient safety is just so critically important.